Now more than ever, it is harder to fly. That's why you need to know of AB Jets. If you want to be efficient with your time and fly with one of the safest private air companies in the world, then you need to use AB Jets. AB Jets has received the prestigious Argus Platinum rating the last eight consecutive years, which goes to less than 5% of operators in the world. AB Jets is one of the largest Lear 60 jet companies in the United States with nonstop access to most destinations around the U.S. Efficient, clean, and easy to work with, AB Jets is an experience that gets you where you need to go on time and with no hassle. Go to abjets.com for more information and book your trip today or call them at 888-520-JETS. That's J-E-T-S. Kennett School System was the first school system to integrate in Missouri, and it integrated the, the very same day Brown versus Board of Education was decided. And I never saw my father or my mother ever scared of making a decision that they thought was the right thing to do. Not once. And my brother and I have talked about that a great deal. And that empowers you to act on things that you believe in and not be concerned of the consequences. Life's hard, but when you find your path in life, you'll find fulfillment. I'm Sam Coates, and welcome to the Driven By Podcast. On this show, I talk to people with purpose. And hearing these stories and conversations, my hope is that you'll see your path, which will bring out the best in you. Follow me on social, on Twitter and Instagram at Sam P. Coates, and learn more about my guests and subscribe to the show at DrivenByPodcast.com. Hey, everybody. My guest today is Ken Masterson. You may know Ken from FedEx, where he built the legal department and was the general counsel for FedEx from 1979 to 2005. Ken tells a one-of-a-kind story when Fred Smith wanted him to build a value-added legal department. But Ken didn't stop there. When Ken retired in 2005, he founded Masterson Farms, where he and his team are dedicated in breeding, raising, and developing the finest Western show horses available where he is working today with his wife, Marilyn. This was a great conversation where we cover why his parents work for civil rights in Missouri, taught him to take risks for causes he believes in, why the thought of failure doesn't bother him when the cause is worthwhile, how his work today still operates off of the principles he learned at FedEx, how COVID taught him to slow down and enjoy the farm and cut down on the excess busyness of life, and more. Last but not least, you can find Ken at mastersonfarms.com. One thing real quick before this week's episode, towards the beginning, you can hear a little bit of background noise at times. It's not a big deal, and you can't hear much of it once you move through the episode, but just want to give you a heads up. Sorry about that. We try to cut it out, but it happened a little bit here. And uh, please enjoy this week's episode with Ken Masterson. Ken, great to see you. Thanks for coming on today. Thank you, Sam. I really, really enjoyed my time trying to understand you as much as I could and understand all the things you, you're doing now and all the things you have done and just the unique aspects of your life. I think the first question I have and where I'd love to start, I've heard you say that regarding a horse, 
I think you either have empathy for the animal or you don't. And if you do, then horses are endlessly fascinating. I'm curious if you could elaborate more about what that means to you. Horses have a, a unique sensitivity toward anything in their environment. And people who love horses, horses sense that. People who are nervous around horses, they also sense that. And that makes the horse nervous because they think there's some reason if that person's sense is nervous, then the horse believes that there's some reason it should be nervous as well because they are totally dependent upon the humans around them. Their only defense is to run away, is flight. And we deprive them of that. They're in stalls, they're in halters, they're in one thing and another that deprives them of their only real defense. And so they're totally dependent on us. And for example, horses around children are different than they are around adults. And our, our main stallion is, is an aggressive stallion. And to our great surprise, one day we looked out and a lady had brought her three-year-old daughter uh, to the farm, had gone out to the stallion paddock, and the little girl was rubbing the stallion's nose. You might come up a few fingers short doing that if you're an adult. And they're very protective of, of children. They're very protective of people that they with disabilities. Uh, they're just they're just a unique animal. Yes, sir. And I know you're a quarter horse man. Do you see that tendency or have you heard that tendency with other animals too? I actually grew up with saddlebreds and my dad had saddlebreds and my wife, Marilyn, her father was a stallion bred trainer and, and uh, breeder. So we've been around, been around the others. Uh, but one reason I love the quarter horses is I think they are particularly sensitive and particularly like that with people. I had a quarter horse when I was eight years old, and the saddlebreds were a totally different uh, breed of cat, and the quarter horse was um, just something that you could do about anything with, and they really like people. Our breeding program has been intended to develop uh, horses who do like people, and it's interesting when someone walks out in a pasture with a group of yearlings the yearlings will almost immediately surround you. Uh, there won't be any that want to run off. There won't be any that want to get away from you. And that, of course, is, is helpful in, in what we do. Yes, sir. And is that just the way they're made? And that's the way they are, that they're that affectionate, that they can feel people and just be comfortable, depending on the body language of the human next to them? Yeah. I mean, they're, they're just ex extraordinarily sensitive to, to people and uh, what people are feeling and what, what people are thinking. So did you grow up in Missouri? I know you went to college at Westminster. Is that right? And then Vanderbilt? Yeah. I grew up in Southeast Missouri and Kennett, Missouri. And so you grew up on a farm? No, actually I grew up in town, but we had a farm. My father was superintendent of schools, but he, he farmed to make a living as well. So I had the best of both worlds. And so I guess at some point you got interested in law but you went to Westminster and then you went off to Vanderbilt and you kind of moved away from small town, Missouri. Well, actually, um, when I, after I graduated at Vanderbilt, I went to Kansas City with a very large firm there. 
And it was a wonderful experience, actually great postgraduate education. And then ended up uh, moving to Sykeston, Missouri to work with a family friend who uh, family was wealthy and had the banks and land and one thing or another. So it was a great experience, unfortunately. And I thought the world of him, uh, he died of a heart attack at 44. So I could have continued practicing there, but I decided I needed to go back to a larger, larger area. So I moved to Memphis, which was just a few, an hour and a half or so from, from my hometown of Kennedy and practiced here and practiced here in the firm. Oh, so you joined a firm here. Mm-hmm. What firm was that? It was the old Thomas and Crawford Hendricks firm. Yes, sir. And then how did you get to FedEx? Well, I knew I had had some experience when I was in Missouri. I represented a number of companies that had local counsel here in Memphis and got acquainted with some Memphis lawyers in that process, and including those who had done a lot of work for FedEx in the very beginning. And uh, they were looking for uh, a general counsel, Fred Smith in particular was, and he wanted someone who would come to FedEx and build an internal legal capability. Uh, rather than relying on outside law firms, he wanted to develop uh, that ability, that process and that ability inside of FedEx. And that was exciting to me, so that's why I left the law firm to do that. Well, I know we'll go there. I'm just curious before we do, was there anything else unique about growing up in Missouri and you know, having a farm, you know, your dad was a superintendent that was kind of formative in your experience to where you are today and the things that you really care about and are devoting a lot of time and energy towards. I think the great experience that I had was with my parents who were a good bit older. I was a second child and I learned so much from them. My father was on the first Civil Rights Commission. And they and he was long associated with Lincoln University, and I I learned from them and being in a small town to appreciate everyone, no matter what their station in life or what their background might be, and I that has always meant a great deal to me and my brother as well. So I think from that that experience taught me to appreciate pretty much everyone you come in contact with in one way or another. Yes, sir. Was your father criticized for his work on the Civil Rights Commission? Yes, he was. Could you talk about what that experience was like for you with your dad and kind of living out the things that he believed in uh, with that work? It wasn't as um, uh, volatile for me at my age as it was for my brother, um, who, as I say, was 11 years older. It was the Southeast Missouri in the 30s was a very volatile, racist society. And um, my father had started out as superintendent of Haytime, Missouri, built a new school for African-Americans because the old school was just pitiful. This was in separate uh, but equal purportedly. Uh, situation and that school was burned the night that it was to be opened and used and my father was threatened and he was probably as 
physically fearless a person as I've, as I've ever known. But watching him, uh, particularly in later years, deal with that situation and the criticism about civil rights was very educational for me. I had a wonderful experience when I was in Kansas City that uh, President Truman, his physician, was in the same building that this law firm was that I was with. I ran into him on the elevator. And, of course, he had integrated the armed services in 1948, which with a number of other Missourians, Stuart Symington and others who were involved. And Mr. Truman remembered my father when he, when I, he heard my name and asked if I was related to him. And he mentioned that he had come to Crothersville, Missouri, and spoken after he left office and expected to be roundly scorned because of his integration in the armed services and had the exact opposite reception. And trying to understand how complicated and how difficult those times were has always interested me. And as much as I've been able to read about it and learn about it, I, but I particularly admired President Truman. He was he was a hero to me. Yes, sir. So you had one other brother growing up. Yes, yes. And was this type of these experiences and the things that you saw in your father and mother and the things that they sacrificed, the things that they believed in, was that formative to you and why you wanted to pursue law? Actually, I wasn't certain what I was going to do uh, until my senior year uh, of college. I actually thought I would teach, and I'm the first male member of my family who hasn't taught for generations. Uh, my brother's a surgeon, and he uh, was chairman of the OBGYN Department, University of Florida Medical School. So I thought I would teach, and it turned out at the last minute, I had a professor at Westminster who urged me to go to law school. So that's, and helped me apply at Vanderbilt. So that's what I did. What do you think he saw in you to help to push you to do that? I'm not certain uh, at all. Uh, he was a wonderful professor. He taught a constitutional law class in undergraduate school. It was ever bit as good as any other constitutional law class I've ever had. He had a law degree in a, in a, from Harvard and, and a PhD from Harvard. He was a wonderful teacher. I don't, I'm not really certain why except I worked very hard in his class and wanted to do well in his class. And it was conducted like a law school class where you stood up and recited and answered questions rather than asking questions, very much the Socratic method. And I enjoyed it. I think he could see that. Yes, sir. I know you said he had his PhD from Harvard, and I may have missed this when I was making a note, but what did he teach you at college? Constitutional law. Okay. I had a major in political science and a major in English, and he taught uh, constitutional law. He was chairman of the political science department. Yes, sir. And maybe he saw just an assumption of what you're saying. You were very curious about certain things, and you were also a very hard worker, and you were passionate about articulating and arguing for the things that you believed in. Is, is that a fair statement? Uh, that's that's more than fair to me. I'm not certain how accurate it is, but... Uh, the, the working hard part certainly was. Talent's another whole other question. <laughs> so then when you went to Kansas City, and you said Sykeston, right? Well, I went to Kansas City out of law school and with the firm. It's actually the largest firm in Missouri. 
and had a great experience there. But then this opportunity came up in Sykesman, which was closer to my parents, of course. And it was it appealed to me because I, I would have the chance to develop my own law practice. And you started that in Sykeston. And then yeah. that's where you worked for a family friend who had a lot of business interest there. Correct. Where you pretty much did all their work and others, but that's where you're able to form a practice. Yes, and he, he had wonderful connections everywhere, and I, I, he developed lots of practice for me. Were you an athlete in high school? Uh, attempted to be. Uh, played basketball, and, and we had a good tennis team. Played tennis and enjoyed it. Did you get married to Marilyn early on, or was that later? No, this is later marriage. Okay. We've been married 20 years now. So then fast forward to Memphis and then FedEx. FedEx was looking for somebody that was an entrepreneur, but also a great lawyer. And I know you'll probably dispute the great part, but. Well, I appreciate it. I'm not sure at all that I deserve it, but I don't want you to stop. (laughs) But so then that's what kind of drew you to FedEx to kind of bring the things that you had already done and bring that to the company. Is that correct? Well, it is. I, I, at the firm in Kansas City, the, the, one of the main partners in that firm mentored me, and he wouldn't have described it this way, but I identified it as value-added legal work. And I thought the opportunity at FedEx, which was just getting started at the time, would give me an opportunity to, to do that and to develop that in a legal department which was what Fred Smith very much wanted me to do. And so we started from there and it was a wonderful experience. And when you say value added, is that pretty much finding a way to solve every need that comes up along with just a very, very fast scaling company, corporation, et cetera? Well, to contribute solutions, it's, it's easy to identify problems. And it's easy to identify things that can go wrong. But lawyers, by training, are very adverse to making mistakes. And I think that's one of the biggest things you have to overcome in the business environment is the willingness to make a mistake and make a judgment and take responsibility. It's, it's all too easy to explain to a client what the alternatives are and what the options are without taking any responsibility for selecting one and being willing to accept the consequences of it. One of the things we did, uh, we began doing our own litigation. And I wanted the lawyers handling the litigation to make the settlement decisions, not force that off to the client um, or the representatives of the client to make that decision. Because they had equity, not not necessarily financial equity, but they they were bought into the organization. They had a vested interest. Well, unfortunately, some lawyers have in litigation have a tendency to exhaust the litigation process and then settle it at the last minute. I thought that that was not not producing much value for the client. So what we urged the trial lawyers to do was to if a case involved some something FedEx had failed to do or had done wrong to settle it on the front end. But if FedEx was had not erred in any way, then to litigate it to the bitter end. And that put a lot of pressure and a lot of responsibility on the trial lawyers to do that. But 
better decisions get made in that process. And it's unfair to ask a manager to make the settlement decision uh, without without having the training, the ability to understand the consequences of it. Was that uncommon or unique thinking at this time, or do you feel like it was just the right thing to do and people just didn't handle it that way for their own interests? Well, I think a, a private law firm has, you know, an additional set of considerations that, that would be the firm's well-being. The wonderful thing about Fred Smith was that he wasn't critical of mistakes being made. He was very critical of nothing being done. And so we were able to be aggressive and to attempt to represent the client without any other considerations other than the client's consideration. And I think I think Fred Smith understood that when he wanted to develop the inside legal ability. This was in the 80s, right? Uh, I went out in 79, and it was through the process of the 80s. So FedEx had been in, was it close to was it 15 years or so? No, it had been in existence. It incorporated. It went public in 79 when I went out there. You went there the first year it went incorporated? Yes. Well, it was, had been incorporated earlier, but first year was public uh, was when I was there. After kind of his foresight and his leadership and then finding you and then your ability to build. I mean, I think when you were gone, there was 151 attorneys on staff with you then. Can you maybe speak to examples of the benefit or of the significant amount of payoff to the company that something like this was done and that trust was given to you to be able to do that? Well, the lawyers uh, during this time, a rapid expansion at FedEx, they had a lot of responsibilities for that expansion, and not the least of which was international expansion. And understand the challenges for FedEx in doing that into other countries because you first of all had to have the support of the U.S. State Department and the support of the U.S. Department of Transportation. And you typically would be opposed by those equivalent ministries in the foreign governments, plus the air carriers in those countries and the post offices in those countries would not want FedEx there. And most of the U.S. carriers wouldn't want to share any routes or authorities. So really, there was nobody (laughs) in our camp. And we had to painstakingly achieve these, I think we're authorized now in some 220 countries. And we were authorized in none when I was there. The first was Canada. And I'll never forget the Vice President of Regulatory Affairs, Doral Cloud, and I went to Canada for the hearing. And we walked in a huge hall, and there were 16 council tables set up. And the commission was across the front. And I asked what all those tables were. And they said, well, they were for the objectors. Sheesh. And so do we have a table? We did. It was in the very back corner and barely big enough for Doyle and I. But we kept battling and kept moving forward and, and finally got Canadian authority. And then the, the, the Japanese authority was extremely hard to come by. We ended up finally getting the first new authority since World War II. And it was so limited and so restrictive, it, it was of little value. So that ultimately led to the purchase of Flying Tigers, for, uh, mainly for their operating authorities. But to get from zero to 220 was, was quite an undertaking and 
a lot of people worked very, very hard to accomplish that, including including Fred Smith, who spent enormous hours and energies working with the governments. And, and it was uh, a wonderful experience for me to work with him and doing that. You know, I've got a few things about some of the things you just touched on, but before we go there, I'm curious. I've read, you know, before you and I got together today over the course of a few hours this week, try to learn as much as I can about you and about your work and all these things to prepare. But one of the things I read online, it was on a public forum, and I don't have the exact quote in front of me, but it said, your first class, you do it the old school way, you treat people the way people need to be treated. And I'm curious, I can't imagine too many more people that had more of a stressful job than you. Obviously, the your, your colleagues at FedEx, Fred Smith, you know, everyone included. But to do what you just said and to be a part of a team to build that, you know, eventually to go into 220 countries, the acquisitions of Flying Tiger, Caliber, American Freight, you know, these massive acquisitions – and then to also all the regulatory things to, to handle all that, but then to and just to know how stress can play in to all of our lives and fr- stress can affect how we talk to people, how we treat people, how we hold people accountable, how we take it home with us. I'm curious, can you speak to that, to maybe things you learned, maybe things that didn't go well, but obviously things that did go well to how you were able to be respected or at least described in that way while also living in a tremendous amount of ambiguity and also a tremendous amount of just expansion and growth and even like things becoming, you know, decentralized and things like that. Can you, can you speak to that a little bit? Well, there was lots of stress to go around. I had no, I didn't have any exclusive right to that uh, at all. And remember it was a very entrepreneurial company and we went through, well, in my time there, about four different management groups. The first, very, very entrepreneurial, uh, risk takers, people who had a background of, of taking risks. And then as you went through each generation, it became a little more, quote, professional and a little less entrepreneurial. But I think what made all of it possible was was Fred Smith. And... He never insisted on best getting in the way of, of better. And he was accepting of efforts. He was accepting of, of things that were done. He didn't expect the, the impossible, and he was out there working with us. I mean, on all the government efforts and all the efforts to obtain government support, both from the U.S. government and from foreign governments, he he was involved very heavily in that. So he, he was very realistic about what could be done and, and what could be accomplished and what might not be at the time. And I was never, ever killed over mistakes that were made. So long as I communicated the fact that the mistake had been made and took the responsibility for it, there was never any real negative consequence to that. And which left you willing to take chances and left you willing to be as aggressive as you could be. And in a different environment, I'm not certain at all that many of those things would have been accomplished. Were you like that before you started or had you always been that way in your career? Or do you feel like that came out of you being in the right environment? Well, that environment very much appealed to me and 
it, it worked for me. And I think I, um, well, a lawyer will give you a choice of four options and not recommend any of the four options and inform you that you're going to be responsible for any negative consequences of those options. Uh, that doesn't appeal to me. I'd rather, uh, I'd rather take a chance, take some responsibility for what goes wrong and, and enjoy the process. And I enjoyed working with the lawyers who had the same, same attitude. And we encourage a lot of young lawyers to be aggressive and not be fearful of, of, of taking responsibility and, and attempting something that no matter how difficult it might seem to be, to not be hesitant about trying. Can you give a few examples of you personally where something like this played out to where you made a call? It was a, I mean, you made a risk, you, you went with it and it created, it was a it, it crash and burn and you had to own it, but you were, where some people might've been fired, but you were able to keep running, keep leading and, and keep staying in the game. Yeah, I can. We uh, first, some of the first international Efforts in Europe were joint ventures, and I went over and set up several of them. And they were miserable failures. They, they just wouldn't work, didn't work. And it was not getting us at all where we wanted to be. And I felt very responsible for it. And Fred and I were coming back from Europe after looking at this disaster I had created and talking about what to do about it. And he never once sought to uh, tear my head off about it. He understood that we had done the best we could do at the time with the information we had available. And I think his his view was that you're better off, you know, shooting and charging the hill than you are laying in the foxhole hoping not to get shot at. So he, he would accept some casualties under those circumstances. He, he knew we were doing you know, very, and this, these are all joint decisions. I mean, this was nothing that I did on my own, but I was the one responsible for it. So I, I, I don't know if that makes sense or not, but 100%. You know, if, you, if your head gets cut off when something's gone wrong, you kind of want to protect your neck in the future. And I never had that experience with Fred or the board. Do you think growing up with your parents and your father, and we haven't talked about your mother much, but it sounds like the courage and the risks that your parents take, do you think that kind of formed this sense of security and risk-taking personality, not in a reckless way, but out of the good of what's possible, that kind of made you get to a place to where, A, you wanted to be a part of this kind of environment, and B, you were personally, you had the kind of courage to to make a call like that and that but just still stay in it and uh and to figure out a way to get it turned around whereas i think a lot of people if you're more sensitive or fragile and i'm not saying this to belittle anyone um i mean i myself can relate to not taking enough risks calculated risks because you're so concerned about image or you're concerned about losing money or etc that you don't really kind of live with that kind of experimental type personality. Do you think any of this was taught to you growing up uh, in Missouri, especially with your parents and the things that they stood for and fought for? Well, I think so. I mean, uh, the Kennedy school system was the first school system to integrate in Missouri and it integrated the, the very same day Brown versus Board of Education was decided. And I never saw 
my father or my mother ever scared of making a decision that they thought was the right thing to do. Not once. And my brother and I have talked about that a great deal. And that empowers you to act on things that you believe in and not be concerned of the consequences. Hey, everybody. We're going to take a quick pause here from the show and hear a word from one of our sponsors. After that, we'll get back to the show. Do you want to make efficient use with your time? Now more than ever, traveling hassle-free is harder to find. AB Jets is one of the safest private air companies in the world with impeccable service with nonstop access to most destinations around the USA. AB Jets has received the prestigious Argus Platinum rating the last eight consecutive years, which goes to less than 5% of operators in the world. Bypass the hassle and get an AB Jets jet card that gets you 10 or 25-hour flight options that makes your experience hassle-free. AB Jets carries up to eight passengers and is one of the largest Lear 60 operators in the U.S., Go to abjets.com for more information or call them at 888-520-JETS, that's J-E-T-S, to travel on your own terms. It sounded like while running and gunning, and I know you're with the company for a long time, but the way you describe Fred Smith was, it's like he selected or picked other individuals that had this spirit that you described, and it, it didn't sound like he was a micromanager or you didn't really speak on that, but it sounded the way you described him. He was vested in every aspect of what needed to be done to make it happen. And he was, he was just involved, but then he was also trying to find people that were committed to run at that tempo. Is, is that true? The way you're describing He had an extraordinarily clear vision of what he thought FedEx should be and what it could be. And, implemented that vision and he wanted people with him who would understand that vision and implement it. And he was not a micromanager, but he had an enormous amount of information about what you were doing and, and how you were doing it. And as I say, he never insisted on best getting in the way of better. Now, his definition of better ran right up against best, so I'm not certain how totally true that is. But the thing that bothered him, bothered Fred Smith most was inaction or an unwillingness to get out there and do something. And you're better off um, taking action than not taking action. That's the greatest mistake you can make is, is not to do something. Yes, sir. And for you personally, do these same things apply to the associates that you hired in building an in-house law division of FedEx of 151 attorneys? I mean, did you run your part of the company that same way? And did you have that kind of sense of growth perspective with your attorneys the same way that it was the way you just described it? I tried to, yes. Encouraging lawyers to be proactive and aggressive across the board is is, is an undertaking because by education frequently and by training Sometimes in some of the law firms, that's not the case. But we were fortunate. Anytime I could find a good lawyer, no matter what their background, we would hire them if I could get them hired. And 
they adapted to a number of different situations very well. We were also, quite frankly, fortunate to be able to hire a number of women lawyers uh, whose husbands came to Memphis for one reason or another. And uh, we had a, a great success with that. I'm curious about you and your ability to be a learner. What was helpful to you as y'all were expanding, doing acquisitions that you're, you know, largely responsible for in a lot of ways? How are you able to learn all of these things from a regulatory standpoint, from an acquisition standpoint, et cetera, in, in these countries? Uh, you said it was, you know, Canada when you started and then 220. How are you able to navigate that over you know, roughly, what, 25, 26 years at such an incredibly fast clip? Well, FedEx, you know, had an excellent reputation for ethical conduct. So that that helped us avoid those situations where unethical conduct was expected in order to gain entry to some of the countries, if that makes any sense. In other words, we paid no bribes and, and never did pay a bribe, and we were known for not paying bribes, which helped you avoid those situations where bribes were expected. Once that became known, then we didn't have any problems in that respect. The issues we had were those that were, were geopolitical, and we had to deal with them as best we could and had to gain the support of the U.S. government across the board. And it, it was... I can't help but contrast that that time to the way our current government is situated and so hugely divided. And we could not have done those things at all in this day and age because we had to look for political support from, from both parties. And we were we were lucky to normally obtain it. So there's bipartisan support, an amazing American company, you know, really providing value around the world. And it was kind of a hometown team in a lot of respects. And you're talking about today just the division and the bureaucracy, and it just it it's night and day difference between now and then. It is the division in our government is when I don't know that we could ever have accomplished what was accomplished in today's age, political age. Yes, sir. Did you know how big of a responsibility you were going to have when you signed on? Uh, I had no idea of the, the growth that was was possible for FedEx. I knew it was a fast track. I knew the, the uh, there was really no legal structure at the time. And I understood it was going to be challenging. But I, I was excited about it. I mean, the opportunity to build a legal department that would have the responsibility it had and not simply be a claims agent for outside law firms um, was very exciting to me. So I, no, I, I had no idea it would reach the the level that it has now. I, I checked the other day; there are 436 lawyers in FedEx now, and they're in 22 foreign countries, locations, and I mean physically have offices there, and it, it's. Uh, Something I'm I'm very pleased to see. Yes, sir. I'm curious about your personality because, you know, Masterson Farms, we haven't talked yet about all the things that you were involved with while you had your career with FedEx. But from what I saw, the quarter horse is the most popular breed 
of horse in the United States. Is that correct? Yes, it is. And Masterson Farms, you talk about, you know, providing the most finest horses in the market. I know you do business not just in the United States, Canada, Europe, Australia, and probably others. But it seems like you have a personality that's rooted in adventure and optimism to where, you know, when you move on from FedEx, you start master some farms. I know you're doing some things prior that we haven't gotten into yet, but then you just go into this 100%. You build, you build your team at master some farms, and now, you know, you're providing horses at the highest level of quality you possibly can, and that's what it sounds like your team is sent on to do as well, but it, it just seems like ambiguity, adversity, the unknown, the hiccups, all those things, it just doesn't seem like a reason not to do something to you. Is that true? That's true. I hope it's not. I hope it's just simply being very optimistic and not not totally foolish and reckless, but uh, I do tend to see the positive side of things and opportunities for growth. I enjoy that. So is it if you see something that you care about or you see something that needs to be done, you feel that you and a team are capable of doing it and it doesn't matter where you went to school, it doesn't matter to some extent the resources you have, you just feel like if it needs to get done, you can get it done? If if you have the right people involved, yes, absolutely. And that's what's fun. I mean, building a team and causing things to happen that you think are of value is has huge appeal for me. How involved were you with quarter horses while you were living this life with FedEx? I knew the last few years at FedEx that I would want to do something after I retire and not simply be inactive. And my father died and he had two old saddlebred show horses when he passed away. My mother had died before that. And I knew he would haunt me if I didn't take care of those two horses. So I boarded them out in a boarding barn. That was very unsatisfactory. Uh, horses weren't cared for one thing or another. So I ended up buying a little bit of land and, and putting the horses, those two horses on there. And then I decided if I was going to maintain them, take care of them, it'd be fun to go find a quarter horse for myself to ride. And in the process of trying to buy one, I realized it was nearly impossible for people to get out and find a good horse at a reasonable value. So it triggered in me the thought that maybe this was something I could set up as a business to do after I retired. So I tried several different formats. I had a boarding barn, I had a training barn, I had several different things. I realized the breeding operation would be that which would be most successful or could be most successful. So began planning for that while I was still at FedEx. But really it was all on maybe the weekend I could get away or a little bit of vacation time, something like that. And ended up buying a couple of mares and breeding them to outside stallions and learned, learned a lot from that. And then ended up buying a stallion and breeding outside mares. And that was kind of the foundation for it. But the time, the time involved was, I always had to rely on other people, which, which was okay. What was unsatisfactory to you 
that then was the kind of foundation that you wanted to build Masterson Farms on? I had bad experiences, um, but the business has changed a lot too. You used to send your mares to breeding farms, and I had a couple of bad experiences with that mares not being cared for one thing or another. So I wanted to run a, a good operation that, that took care of the animals and took care of the customers. And I thought a lot of the horse business wasn't adequately customer focused. And I thought there was an opportunity there for a business that was heavily customer focused. And that has developed to be the case. And if you just boil that down to simple principles, what does customer focus mean? And how is that? What are the things that you've done and your team's done to create impact for the work y'all do today? I think, first of all, what the customer's needs are, and then consider what the business needs are. But just like the old FedEx days where, you know, customer focus was taking care of the customers, providing the service, and that would lead to the problem. It's fairly simplistic, but it also happens to be very true in our service business. So that was that was our focus. So you were able to take these basic principles that seem so hard to do sometimes or so uncommon sometimes, and you're able just to build things out in a very first principles type way, and then it's been a lot of fun for you to put a team together and to do this for the last 15, 16 years. Is that right? That's right. That's right. There's nothing I enjoy more than working with a, with a good group of people who have a common objective. And it's been particularly fun with, with Marilyn because she learned, figured out early on that the horse business, at least a quarter horse business is, uh, driven by women. They they tend to buy the horses. They tend to make the breeding decision. And the advertising had always been uh, simply a wind picture at some horse show with a number of people and a horse and all this. And she began an advertising program that was just her and the horse. And with nothing else on the ad, very little print. And that really developed our business in a huge kind of way. Now that's typical of practically all the advertising, but at the time that was, that was unique. And from a team standpoint, what do you think the people that are with you? I know it's 21 folks with you now at Masterson Farms. What was the energy or what was the enjoyment satisfaction that you had when putting together that team in the early days to do this? What do you feel like those people, what were they passionate about? And how were you able to come in, put a team together, and build something pretty special out of Somerville? Well, you had to be certain that um, anyone here was here because they love horses. If someone was here just for a job, then this is uh, too much hard work for someone to be satisfied, and that's all they're interested in. So uh, Dr. Anderson, our veterinarian, is as good a reproductive vet as you could ever hope to have. And he loves it, and he works at it immensely hard. And same thing with uh, the trainers who are here, Casey Willis, and people who put the effort and time into it because they thoroughly enjoy it. That, that old line about if you love what you do, you'll never work a day in your life. I absolutely believe that's true. What did you see at FedEx? I mean, you were there a long time, and – and that's a that's a lot of work. That's a lot of speed. That's a lot of travel. That's a lot of hours for you and others. What 
what did people love or want to be a part of then for the ones that were the most committed and stayed there the longest and were the best people to work with during that time? I think the opportunity to see something succeed that was given a little chance of success early on and to watch it develop and to grow as it grew so rapidly. The whole thing about Bleed Purple kind of captured that. As the company became more complex and, you know, add additional uh, companies and make acquisitions, uh, some of that gets diluted, but uh, that's still the, the huge reason for the company's success and growth. But what you're saying is that passion, whether it's for horses or whether it's for making something work that people say can't or has a little chances of doing it, kind of that chip on your shoulder, you feel that you've seen that over and over again, that that's what makes great people stand out? Yes. It certainly makes life enjoyable. I mean, if, if, if you have an objective and it's a reasonable objective, one capable of, of being achieved, and you can do it in a, on a team basis with other people working toward that same objective. That makes it easy to get out of bed in the morning for me. Can you talk about your risk-taking personality, not from a reckless standpoint, but just the way you described it being necessary? Have you taken any risks or your team taken any risks with Masterson Farms? I think the FedEx experience was, is totally applicable to this because, of course, the, the entire horse business is a risk. So... You know, you've got to got to undertake it with, with that uh, understanding. Uh, but they're not at all dissimilar. And I think the extent to which I've enjoyed this and working with, with Marilyn and the others here to achieve what we've achieved has, has been a great joy for me. Are there any things that you did early on where you felt that sense of confidence and maybe you, the people that work for you and work with you. They kind of looked at you and thought you were crazy and you went for it and, and it might not have worked, but other breeders probably wouldn't have had the courage or confidence to do it. I'm certain that, you know, a number of people have looked at me through the years and thought I'm taking leave of my senses. I, I don't think that would surprise me very much, but I think engaging people in a common effort and helping them to understand the value in, in, in undertaking that effort for them, as well as the group, is a very rewarding thing to do. I think a lot of good things come from that. And again, going back to my parents, I think the fundamental kindness to everyone is a wonderful, wonderful asset to have. I, we just lost in Memphis Arnold Pearl, who had a huge civic role, but I never saw him be unkind to anyone. He always had a kind word and a greeting to, to make, and I think he'll be missed, and I think that's one reason he's receiving such tributes at the moment. just happened to be on my mind because I saw that today. Right. With the work that your team is doing now, are there things that you've learned that you're just because of your experience – you know, with FedEx expansion that's really helped you and served your team well with your work, with your clients in Australia, Europe, Canada, et cetera. I can't imagine, you know, the complexity of that at times. Well, I think if you're going to expand internationally, there are going to be a lot of frustrations involved with that, just from a regulatory point of view of nothing else. But 
if if the goal is to is worthwhile, then you just have to accept that. Try to work with it as best you can, and not express too much temper in dealing with the people who uh, who would seem perhaps are creating hurdles that don't need to don't need to exist. People usually have a reason for doing what they're doing, and normally, if you just give them the credit for having good reasons for doing it, then they're a lot easier to work with and ultimately a lot easier to accomplish what you need to accomplish. So you're describing a blend between persistence and patience and navigating that and and allowing people to dictate kind of their own interests through what you're trying to negotiate. And politeness. At any point where you, you know, now where you're at with Masterson Farms, do you ever look back and wish that you would have started that sooner and wrapped up your career with FedEx earlier? No, no. I think the timing was, was about right. I had, I had continued at FedEx. I would have had some health complications, which I didn't, didn't need to have. And I know the timing was, timing was just about right. I hear you. Curious as we're kind of wrapping up, what do you think you got right? What do you think Fred Smith got right? What do you think your colleagues got right? But specifically you, to be able to start your own legal department, to be the chief counsel for FedEx, to start that from scratch. I'm sure you saw a lot of other people try to pull that off that it didn't work or it didn't work as well. It definitely didn't end in a way where they would say that, you know, the positive things that you've said today. What are some of the principles and takeaways when you just kind of boil life down and it doesn't matter what the challenge is. If you do those things, it may not always work out perfectly, but you're going to put yourself in the best position possible to succeed while doing it the right way. Well, I never wanted to make a decision that I lost sleep on. So trying to do the right thing, simply put, is, is that works. And if you don't know what the right thing is, then perhaps you shouldn't be attempting it at all. And, you know, there's always a huge concern about legal ethics and ethics generally. And I've never found it quite that complicated. I mean, if if you're uncertain about things, about whether you're doing something that's wrong, then perhaps you shouldn't be doing it. And if you've got worthwhile goals, and you're not trying to take advantage of a situation or take advantage of someone in that process, then I think it's fairly straightforward. And the, the, the opportunity to build that legal department was one that was given, given to me by, by Fred Smith and had his continuing and full support, even when it might not be pleasant for him. And because that was his vision, that's what he thought we should do. He never varied from it. He never failed to support it. And that made it possible. Absent that, I don't think we could have. And when you say not pleasant to him, what do you mean by that? Well, obviously, um, law firms would like to have had all of FedEx's business. And instead, he was willing. And, you know, of course, he, he knew lots of lawyers. And they all would like to have had... Uh, some of the business and it had been simple for him to spread it around with a lot of different law firms. 
rather than insisting on. And at the time, that was something unique. The only other company I was aware of that had any kind of a legal department at all at the time was IBM. And nobody tried their own lawsuits, but we did. And we also did, you know, first all the opinions on financings, which was also unusual. But it took us a while to get there. But it was the consistent support, without exception, for us to build that kind of a legal department with quality people who did quality work and who had high aspirations for what they were doing. Something that you shared was, you know, doing the right thing, not having trouble sleeping at night. I think, I mean, I can only speak for myself or others when I've heard this play out in their own life. Sometimes because of fear of consequences or if you're, let's say you feel like you're running out of liquidity, whatever that might be, it might, you know, there's just situations or there might be things that if you don't do this, then this will happen, et cetera. When talking to you, you sound like you have a very kind of black and white sense of ethics and sense of morality in doing the right thing. And, it, and you know, from what we unpacked earlier, you learned that at an early age and it sounded that you were able to understand what it took to speak up for the things that you believed in and to be okay if you had enemies and all that kind of stuff. Were there ever any moments throughout your career doesn't matter where it was, whether it was at Masterson Farms, FedEx, where by doing the right thing, because you wanted to, you know, sleep at night, et cetera, but where you honestly thought that you might not make it, you know, you thought that the organization that you were a part of, or you thought that it was going to cost you something to do the right thing, but you felt like it was the right thing to do to go ahead and do it anyways. You see, you see people who have a, a fear of failure. And that motivates sometimes you to do things that you shouldn't do or that in hindsight you wish you hadn't done. I've never been particularly scared to fail because I guess I don't, I guess I can't foresee the consequences of, of failing to achieve something being so terrible that I can't take that risk. And the things that, that, um, at FedEx that we tried to do, um, had we failed in some of them, it would not have been the end of the world because it wasn't structured that way. The consequences of, of trying and not getting everything done you wanted to get done were simply that you just continued to try or tried to figure out a different way to do it. But there was no price paid for an instant failure. So the worst case scenario, homeless bankrupt your mind doesn't go there you you think your mind goes to a place of failure means this might not work but we can redeem it another way i guess so yeah i've never had to encounter a situation where the the, the consequences would be so dire that it would cause it, that i would have trouble making decisions that involve that i mean if you think about it if something doesn't work out the way you want it to, that doesn't mean you can't try another way to make it work out. And I, I suppose that's what I've always tried to do. And do you see an ability, for the most part, that you've been able to go 100% each day? And so if something does fail or if, in fact, 
an entity did fail, you feel that there's always going to be another opportunity because you did the best you could with what you had at that time? Yes. I mean, I think the, the greatest failure is, is an unwillingness to try and to try again. And then you are failing. But if, if you never, never quit, uh, it, it's pretty hard to have failed. And you, and would you say? I know I'm kind of getting existential here a little bit, but from a society standpoint, you talked about lawyers and lawyers almost being trained to not fail and not take risks. And do you see this being a, a major challenge in our society today? Why people don't have that comfort with failure the way that you've described it and the way it benefited you and others? I, I'm concerned about our current state of affairs. Our political situation, I think, is is truly unfortunate. And I think people, the apparent disregard for the ease with which people disregard something that's patently true bothers me. And a fact is a fact. That old line about you're entitled to your own opinion, but you're not entitled to your own set of facts, I think so true and in this day and age of spin and, and political conclusions being drawn about things and I just think it's a difficult time. We've got to really deal more with truth and with fact and we've got to correct the things in this country that are causing people to get confused about what's true and what's factual. I hear you. Do you travel a lot for events, for Races, competitions, things like that? We have been. And since since I retired, we've been on the road a great deal at horse shows and one thing and another. And uh, COVID, last year, we didn't go to a single horse show. Our, our horses went and our folks went, but Marilyn and I did not, mainly because she's a caregiver for her mother. And I'm not at an age where I need to... Uh, get COVID. We lost a very dear friend very early in the calendar year. So we, we tried to be extremely careful. And interestingly enough, it, it caused us to realize we've been far too busy and traveled far too much uh, and that we need to take a step back and enjoy, enjoy things a little more. So by, by us experiencing COVID and by losing somebody that was close to you, there was a sense of simplicity that was created in your life and that you want to continue to, to live out of moving forward? Well, Marilyn and I realized that 20 years we've been married, we never sat in the backyard and just enjoyed it. So this with, with the COVID year, we did. And we found that we really enjoyed it. And we need to do more things like that. So traveling the world, working you know, an extraordinary amount of hours, doing all the things that you have at this point in your life, sitting in the backyard and enjoying your farm, that gives you the most joy out of anything. That has a great deal of appeal, yes. That's wonderful. Well, Ken, thank you so much, and uh, I appreciate you spending time with me this afternoon, and I appreciate your just ability to kind of talk about all these different buckets, and I also appreciate the value, um, and I look forward to people learning from you, not just from a business or from an entrepreneurial standpoint, but also to just your family, your parents, how you talked about that, how it played out in your life. I know for me, 
it was very helpful and it's it's something I'll come back to just how to live life how to you know how to really live with courage and and take risks but also you know try to do it the right way well I appreciate the obvious work you put into into doing this you learn more about me than I'm sure you might well not have learned so I appreciate it Thank you for listening to this episode of the Driven By Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a review. Also, please subscribe to the show, follow me on social, and join me on this curiosity-fueled journey so that you can feel that same sense of purpose and see the opportunities that are right for you. All of this at drivenbypodcast.com. See you next time on the Driven By Podcast. Podcast.